on today's show. Overwhelmingly, Paul uses honor-shame language, not legal language, to explain what sin is. You know, it's, it's dishonoring God. That's emphasized again and again and again. It's lacking the glory of God, right? And so therefore, the name of God is blaspheming among the Gentiles because of it. So shame is both the root and the fruit of, of what sin is, bringing shame upon God's name and bringing shame upon ourselves. Stay tuned. And welcome to the Missions Podcast, the show that explores your hard questions on missions, theology, and practice to help goers think and thinkers go. I'm Alex Kochman, Director of Communications and Media. Before we get started with today's episode, a little bit of an important announcement. If you've been following this show for a long time, or maybe this is just your first or second time here, first of all, we're glad you're here. If you enjoy the show, remember to share it and leave a positive rating and review in your podcast platform of choice. And you might also be interested to know that we are in the midst of launching another podcast brought to you by ABWE. The Missions Podcast is a ministry of ABWE, and soon we're going to be introducing Cloud of Witnesses, another production from ABWE as well. And so in a moment, I'll be joined by my friend and the producer of Cloud of Witnesses, Grant Boring. But that's in a moment. First, take a listen to this preview here before our conversation today. I had nobody to interact with, nobody to, to give me any um, encouragement or guidance in that area and what to do. And it was really, I guess over the, those three months, it just got to the point where I was becoming more and more depressed. I was asking, you know, God, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to do it? And I just, I just couldn't bring anything together on it. And I finally thought to myself, you know, Let's just do this. Let's just find a place. We'll go and do the best we can and start out in the, in, in the best way we can in, in doing that. And that was that was probably the low point, yet the definitive point in which I said, okay, let's start moving in a certain direction. For 2,000 years, Christ has been extending his kingdom through ordinary, faithful people. Their blood, sweat, and tears are the seeds of the global church. The gospel is spreading across the world, saving sinners, renewing nations, and changing everything. But today, many in the modern church are weak, torn, comfortable. The book of Hebrews says we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses watching us from heaven, spurring us on. The stories of these faithful Christ followers who've gone before us are what we need to wake up and return to our first love for Christ's mission. Let's learn from them. Well, just a little bit of a taste there of a powerful story, one of several real stories of missionaries with ABWE through the years, brought to you by ABWE. And joining us now to discuss this new show is Grant Boring, new friend here and producer of Cloud of Witnesses. Grant, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me on. Grant, help us set this up. How did you get plugged into this project? Tell us a little bit about yourself and what God has been doing in your life to bring you onto this missions-related project. Yeah, so um, I became a Christian almost 15 years ago. And since I became a Christian, I've had a heart for missions. But I wasn't sure where that was going to lead. And uh, the door hasn't opened in my life for me to serve overseas 
but I've gotten the opportunity now uh, working with uh, AVWE to work on this project. I've had a chance in the past to work on uh, projects for my local church, as well as some contractual work for a large uh, Christian television station. Very cool. And we've been collaborating on this. I'm extremely excited for it to get underway, especially because we're we're not really adding a lot of commentary or a lot of content ourselves. So if you listen to the Missions podcast, you're used to a lot of our opinions. You're used to guests coming on. And this is not that type of a show, right? This is much more documentary style. Absolutely. In fact, that was a lot of the inspiration for it. Uh, with a background in filmmaking, I, I really love documentaries. I love sharing stories. And the, the importance of a testimony, you know, especially a Christian testimony. And so we didn't want the podcast to be driven by a narrator or um, by our own voices, but by truly the voices of those who have sort of faithfully as missionaries. Mm. Yeah, I, I think one of the podcasts that I re- listened to recently a couple of years ago, I, n- I was never really listening to shows in this genre. And when Christianity Today put out Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, I don't want to make any comments about the veracity of the reporting there. And, and there's there's a lot of opinions pro and con of what was done there. But what was striking was just the compelling power of storytelling there. And as we're looking around just the ministry that God has entrusted to us at ABWE, we've been here for a hundred years. There's so many stories of people that have gone before and have incredible stories of faith. And we're just trying to get those stories out there because I grew up in a generation where uh, I, I don't know if it was just my church or my family, but I, I wasn't really exposed to stories of historic missionaries and biographies that people, uh, many of the listeners of the show have read stories their whole lives of Amy Carmichael and Hudson Taylor and Adoniram Judson. Uh, I didn't. And yet there's modern heroes, too, whose stories that we can tell. I think there's so much to be done there. So, Grant, tell us, why do you think that this show and shows like it is something that the church, even here in America, not just on the mission field, but why is this something that the church needs in the present moment? That's a great question. And to your point, you know, I've had a lot of exposure to missionaries, the missionaries that maybe our church has sent out or missionaries we support, and they've come and they've shared what's going on. But oftentimes those stories are very surface level. You get a broad picture of what's going on. Maybe you get a little story here and there. But I think it's important to know and understand what not only the, the struggles that they have are, you know, are oftentimes very relatable to our own struggle. Yes, they're serving as missionaries, but they're Christ followers just like us, and their struggles can be just like ours. And I think that we can take encouragement from that. And also to see the faithful way that God has worked through those trials and through situations that are uh, are difficult, really difficult. And you'll see throughout the podcast series that there's a trend of of difficult circumstances that each missionary couple has had to work through and uh, how God has faithfully delivered them through those circumstances. You know, Grant, I'm not an emotional person. Most people probably aren't overly surprised by hearing that. And I was uh, very close to to being driven to tears, if not actually started to, to feel my eyes well up with emotion uh, at least twice in the process of listening to just three episodes that I've already had the opportunity to be a a part of producing together with you. Some of the stories of these missionaries are incredible, and I think it's exactly what we need to hear in the present moment. There's stories of triumph, stories of trials and difficulty as well. So help orient our listeners when this show drops here soon in a couple of weeks, what can they expect from it? Yeah, I think to your point earlier, it's very much a documentary style. It's going to pull at your heartstrings 
you're going to to hear, as I said, you mentioned the trials and really put into perspective what what it looks like to become a missionary, what it looks like to serve, you know, for those who are interested, you know, understanding the steps that are required, understanding that when you get into the field, it's not always black and white as to what that next step looks like. And so it'll help open your eyes to what the life of a missionary looks like. And um, I think it'll, it'll grow your compassion and grow your desire to want to learn more. One other thing that I think we can encourage listeners about, this is not just a podcast for missionaries, for professional Christians, people in full-time ministry. It's not even necessarily a podcast that requires that you have a lot of background missions knowledge, which frankly, we're aware of sometimes the missions podcast, you have to be a little bit aware of what's happening in missiology for some of our conversations to make sense. And that's not this show. This is a show that I could play for my grandmother, that that you could play for yours, right? This is someone that you could put into the hands of anyone in your church, anyone in your congregation to encourage their faith, to upbuild them, and also to plant the seed of missions in their mind as well. And so I'm curious, what's the one story as you've been working with so many of these long form interviews with giants of the faith, people that are are reaching closer and closer to that moment when they'll stand with Christ in glory, right? These are people who, frankly, many of their stories, not all of them, but but especially the ones that are a little bit wiser, shall we say, we want to capture these stories because when this generation is gone, who's going to be able to tell these stories, right, too. And we, we talk to people on the younger side as well and everywhere in between. But what were some of the stories, maybe even just one of them, that stood out to you the most and encouraged you the most in your faith, Grant? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. Um, you know, the one that probably comes to my mind first is Steve Aholt, who served in Papua New Guinea and served as a pilot. Mm, yeah. And not to give anything away, the the what I loved about his story was that he, in his own words, was able to share how God was working in each story. But one of the first stories he shares is that, you know, he he accepts Christ and he doesn't know where he's going to go, what he's going to do, and just says, God, show me where you want me to go. And uh, when he's in Papua New Guinea, he flies to a remote area and meets a woman, and I'm telling a very broad version of the story, meets a woman who shares with him that many, many years ago, she prayed for a Baptist missionary to come. And he looks back and traces it back to the same year that he said, God, God, where are you going to send? And that just, it gives me goosebumps right now. It's stories like that, that they need to be shared. They need to be passed on for generations. And for me personally, and I'm sure there'll be others, Oftentimes, patience is so hard. We trust God's plan. We know he's got uh, plans for us. But what's that next step look like? And we Mm. may not see it for one year, two years. I mean, it might be a decade before you see it, but he'll show you. And and so it was really, that story really touched me and and it's done a lot in my life. I'm also thinking of the story that was shared in the preview clip that we just played, which, again, you're hearing somebody who's just wrestling through God's will and direction through their lives. Uh, this is the Weavers who served with ABWE in England. And, and you just realize that God is at work in the mundane, in the menial parts of life, the times when you're not on the spiritual mountaintop having uh, sort of an emotional high, but even down in the valley, 
is when God is with you. And in hindsight, you can see all the ways that he's working. And so this is definitely the sort of show that I think will encourage all sorts of people in the church, on the mission field, and everywhere in between. And so, Grant, we're so excited that you're a part of producing this. This is a team effort as well. Uh, Jay York is a volunteer with ABWE who's been conducting a lot of interviews over the last year to make this happen. Tito, the producer of this show as well, Tito Estevez is on this project providing some advising and helping with recording as well. And so we're so grateful for everybody that's a part of this project. We're expecting this to launch soon in the summer. And at the time that you're hearing this, we should hopefully have it set up so that you can go to cloudofwitnessespodcast.com and opt in to receive an update when this launches. So when this launches, if you want to be notified that it's now live and you can subscribe and listen, we're going to be dropping, I think, about 10 episodes in our first season. So you'll be able to binge listen to this if that's the thing that you like to do. You can do so here soon, cloudofwitnessespodcast.com. Grant, thank you for being here with us today. And now, of course, you clicked on this episode in order to hear the missionary formerly known as Jackson Wu, of course, that is a name that he uses for security, but we're going to be talking to him about some important issues, and so let's head on over to that. We are here with our friend Brad Vaughn, who you may know if you're in the missions community by a different name. You might know him as Jackson Wu, the author of multiple helpful books on missiology and controversial books at that Books like Reading Romans Through Eastern Eyes and Saving God's Face, Exploring Issues of Honor and Shame, particularly from his background in ministering in East Asia. And so, Brad, we are so excited to have you here today. Tell us a little bit more about yourself. Hey, thanks, guys. I love your podcast, so I'm honored. Uh, my name is Brad. I honored. Have You're a, honored. Ah. I'm honored. Oh, I see what you did uh, there. You just uh, saved our faces. I'm, I'm, Hey. I'm full of I'm full of honor shame puns. I assure you. So uh, uh, we'll we, use plenty. Uh, my wife and I have five children, and uh, only one wife. We uh, served, good. and uh, in some cultures, I have to say that we served in China for about fifteen, sixteen years. Uh, we started an underground accredited underground seminary with another team there, uh, all in Chinese. Uh, and then in 2019, had to leave because of various concerns related to security and whatnot. So we are now in the Phoenix area. Well, wonderful. We're so glad to have you on. And we just want to dive into this topic, which some of our listeners may be very aware of. We've addressed it, but probably several years ago now, Alex. But something that I think is very, um, you know, really a, a perennial question and issue, and that's how do we minister effectively cross-culturally? So you, you use this title in your book, Saving God's Face. Certainly people that have served in Asia understand this phrase, but help us understand a little bit. In Asian culture, what is saving face? And then explain for us how you see this, this concept of honor, shame at work as a cultural perspective. Well, I'm glad you started with a real simple question. You know, that kind of gets the ball <laughs> right, rolling. Right, of course. Let's <laughs> talk about culture. Yeah. <laughs> Summarize briefly all the things. Go. So saving face is an East Asian way, particularly talking about one's reputation, uh, mm. one's status, you know, honor, it's the honor shame language. You know, it's, it's your mm. face and how you project and present yourself, right? Your status. So when we're talking about honor, we're talking about a person's right to respect. And you can have a, a right to respect or claim re the right to respect based on maybe your, your performance, your character, you know, things you do, or it could be your position, you know, uh, your, your role, right? So on the one hand, I could get straight A's, I could win the gold medal and I'll be honored. Or I could 
Mm. Say, for example, have the last name Obama, Clinton, you know, Trump. And mm. I walk into a room and I have a certain honor or shame, mm. depending mm -hmm. on what, you know, your political opinion. So that's, that's part of what it is, the half face, the safe face or the lose face. It has this the idea of uh, uh, your reputation, dealing with your status and reputation within the community. Yeah, for sure. For, for us as uh, Westerners in particular, looking kind of in from the outside, as modern Westerners, you could point to a number of things and see, hey, we're kind of shameless now as a society. And so these topics tend to be new for us. And I tend to be careful when we have conversations about contextualization. Sometimes when you have a shiny brand new hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? And, and people learn a new paradigm and they want to interpret everything that they see in other cultures through the lens of that singular paradigm. But with that said, I still think there's so much more that we have to explore here with this idea of honor, because in so many sectors of our home culture, that's just not a factor anymore. And so what are some differences, especially between the way Westerners and Asians would approach the idea of honor and of shame? Okay, an excellent question. And I would say that all theology and all practice is contextualized, just a matter of how good it is. And so anything I'm saying, I would not say we're supposed to read everything to honor shameless. I'm simply saying, hey, there's this big aspect of human existence and of the Bible that we've been overlooking. And I want to make sure we're bringing that back in so we all have the whole tool set as it were. So let's define shame, all right? People tend to talk past each other and we tend to think, oh, shame is bad and, and shame is get, being getting rid of and we're to be shameless. And I would say, no, 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 no. These are a bunch of half-truths. Mm -hmm. There is psychological shame. It's one like Brene Brown. And it's more like low self-esteem. That's one aspect of shame. There's also social shame. That is like one's, you know, position, social worth, social identity. You know, so when you bully someone, uh, you're publicly shaming them, mm -hmm. right? So that's like anthropologists are talking about. And I mean, those are not the same. Those are connected, but they're not the same. And mm. at, from a moral perspective, shame is that sensitivity to the pains of others, sensitivity to mm. what's appropriate. So if you genuinely are shameless, you're a dangerous person. You're to be avoided. Mm. You don't have a conscience, right? That's not, that's not a good thing in any culture. So that's at the heartbeat of, of being a moral integrity person. And so shame is, is both subjective and objective. The problem is that Westerners tend to think of shame merely as this psychological phenomenon and guilt as this objective biblical thing. And so there's this chasm, right? Well, guilt, you could be objectively guilty or you could feel guilt, okay? Mm. Same thing with shame. I could feel shame or I could be shamed, you know, from the outside, mm. people shaming me, you know, humiliating me or, you know, basically treating me bad, bringing down my status, you know, uh, kind of like, you know, a, like a Twitter mob, they may bring down your status, but your self-esteem might not go down, but they're making you look bad in the eyes of the community, right? So there's objective and subjective components of both. And what we find in scripture is both subjective and objective guilt and shame. They're both there. And I would actually argue that shame is far more robust and holistic a concept than guilt, which doesn't make it hmm. better or worse. But shame is dealing with our identity and our place in a community or collective identity, whereas guilt is primarily concerned with not violating certain norms or, you know, doing bad things. Mm. Makes sense. Yeah. Guilt's a smaller category. Yeah. Go ahead, Scott. Follow up. No. So, like, help us understand it because a little, little from our, our Western perspective, 
because sometimes people would say, well, Western society is not an honor shame culture versus like Asia or China would be considered an honor shame culture. And it, how how does that make sense? I mean, because obviously we feel honor. Uh, we we have ways uh, of honoring people in the West. We have ways of feeling shame or shaming someone in the West. Why would we say the West is not an honor shame culture? Well, the truth is that all cultures are honor shame cultures, and that is all cultures care about what honor and status and reputation and and want to avoid shame. That's a human dynamic. But mm-hmm. people tend to call traditional cultures honor shame cultures. And really coming down to convention, going back to say the forties at least, you know, where these, a lot of traditional cultures are far more overtly sensitive to their group identity. And so you're saying traditional cultures it doesn't have to be just an Asian culture. No, absolutely. And so many Middle Eastern cultures. Yeah. And the truth is that every culture we go to on a shame dynamics are there. It's a matter of how aware are people of it and what's the language mm-hmm. they use for it. Okay. And so even in America uh, or the West, pervasively, thickly honor shame oriented. For example, look at sports culture, right? This military, uh, Southern culture in the United States and lots Mm -hmm. of books written on that. And social media, Facebook, like me, follow me, you know, uh, cancel culture, you know, public shaming there. This is, I mean, these are all different ways in which honor and shame manifest in the United States. And so mm-hmm. wherever you have some idea of a group identity or collective identity, you're going to have honor shame dynamics because it has to do with, hey, what is my status and my role and my position within, within the people? So one more thing that may help with the distinction here. People in the West tend to emphasize your honor and shame because honor and shame and identity are so intertwined. They tend to honor things that are more individualized so that they see identity as how I'm different mm-hmm. and how I stand out from everyone else. Whereas in more traditional Eastern mm-hmm. cultures, your identity is how you're the same as other people. You share the same language, same heritage, same tradition, so forth. And that is more honored, right? And so that is one way in which you see the honor shame games custom split is this emphasis on how I'm the same, where I'm different than people. The truth is, though, human identity is always a comp- complex combination of both. So, so let's talk about it as it relates to the gospel presentation, right? Because, you know, probably most of our listeners grew up maybe like me and, you know, the courtroom analogy would be used and maybe in a gospel, you know, uh, presentation. And you write in your book, uh, Saving God's Face, why have Christians favored law language when so much of the Bible emphasizes God's glory and as people not being put to shame. So the question I have for you as you were thinking through this, Brad, is do you see favoring, you know, as you put it, law language as a problem? Or do you just think we need to add in honor language? Can you help us understand that a little bit? Yeah, the problem I have is when we favor law language to the exclusion of any other sorts of imagery and language, especially Mm -hmm. given how prominent uh, honor shame language is. And I think that if you understand how the law language is used in scripture, you understand that it's not law in the same sense that we talk about now. It's actually dealing with covenant language, you know, and, mm-hmm. and c- collective identity, right? What, uh, what brings glory to God, not just simply abstract standards, okay? It's very relational, it's covenant to us, to allegiance and loyalty to God, the king, right? So it's just far more rich and, uh, that's what I want is, is a recovery that's so we get all of scripture. And so mm. uh, let's look at sin, 
for example. Sin is oftentimes thought of as breaking a law, breaking a rule. And in Chinese culture, sin is translated crime. So to say, tell somebody, hey, you're a sinner is to say you're a criminal. And they don't have any kind of Christianized background. So they understand, oh, what you really mean is, you know, something, this or that. And so they just don't, they just don't get it. And I remember when we first went to China thinking, if we can't understand what sin is and we can't communicate that, we can't communicate a whole lot of things. Hmm. And so one of the things I spent a significant amount of time in my book, Reading Romans with Eastern Eyes, is explaining how Paul defines sin in Romans 1 to 3. Because overwhelmingly, Paul uses honor-shame language, not legal language, to explain what sin is. You know, it's, it's dishonoring God. That's emphasized again and again and again. It's lacking the glory of God, right? And so therefore, the name of God is blaspheming among the Gentiles because of it. So mm. shame is both the root and the fruit of, of what sin is, bringing shame upon God's name and bringing shame upon ourselves. So, Brad, what you're saying makes sense on a certain level. Obviously, Scripture has so much to say about God's glory, the way that we put him to shame. You, you cited some relevant passages from Romans 2 and from Romans 3. And I appreciate your nuance that your beef is with legal language that excludes these other dimensions. And I think we can agree that, yeah, we want to let Scripture give us all of these categories and we want to use all of these categories together and not pit certain themes or analogies of redemption sure. against one another. Um, rather than debating some of the surface level things, I'd like to go deeper and see where maybe the two sides of this conversation, the side that would be very much in the favor of legal language, which is is typically where I fall, but then also the I think the good just biblical theology behind some of the honor and shame themes that are in scripture, if there's a point at which those roots converge under the surface, or if there's a deeper tension in there, let's kind of expose that. Because just brief side note here, thinking through church history, I mean, I can think of at least one figure in which both of these these themes kind of converge would be Anselm, Anselm of Canterbury mm -hmm. uh, in Curdeus Homo, where his, his theory of the atonement yes. is that, that God is essentially saving face. He has to satisfy the demands of justice for his own honor and glory. So I, I think the legal and yeah. the, the honorific kind of go together there. So I guess the question that I would say to you is, what would you say to someone like, let's, let's cite our friend E.D. Burns here. He writes about this in the Transcultural Gospel. We've had him on the show. You can look that up, missionspodcast.com, or scroll back in your feed. But E.D. Burns would say, well, okay, there's, there's this uh, guilt-innocence paradigm. There's this fear-power paradigm. There's this honor-and-shame paradigm, right? We're familiar with Mueller. We're familiar with the various uh, paradigms, honor-shame being one of them. He would say at the center, though, the nucleus kind of uniting all of these others that are in orbit and, and coming out of that center is moral code, is either moral law keeping or breaking and the implications of that. So it, rather than saying, well, the, the legal itself is at the center, he says, well, well, there, there's a moral code here at the center. Yeah, there's a there's a legal offshoot of that that goes even deeper down that rabbit trail of, of guilt and innocence specifically. Uh, but he would also say honor and shame. Yeah, that's an offshoot from here as well. At the center, though, is conformity to the law of God or want unto, right, to use the older confessional language. Brad, what would you say to that way of framing things? Is that a responsible way of sort of trying to get people on the same page? Or in your opinion, does that maybe favor one redemptive theme above another? 
Well, I'm, I'm smiling because it's uh, begging the question because even the very framing of it, it put, puts law predominant, conformity to God's law. I mean, right. I mean, it's not even a genuine, like, which do you see law or honor shame? And it's, it's prioritizing the law at its definition, the way, the way Evan, uh, and, and the way you articulate it there, I would agree that at the center of it is this moral component, but moral, what is moral and good and right is not necessary. This is where I think Western theology can go awry is that Western uh, moral is not always necessarily something framed in legal language. That's metaphorical language, like, like uncleanness or these other things, right? So yes, law language, totally legit. But at the heart of what is moral and right is what is honorable, what is praiseworthy, what is shameful and blameworthy, okay? And if, when you're talking about a king, you're talking about a law, but when inherently what the law is supposed to do is supposed to instantiate, put into words, codify what are the values of the culture. Theoretically, that's what, you know, the king's law is supposed to do. This is an honorable way of living and this is a shameful way of living. So it's depending on what metaphor you're talking about right and wrong, you're going to emphasize certain language. And I, uh, so yes, legal language is great because it does concern a king. But remember, a, a king is a judge, but a judge is not necessarily a king. And sometimes when we're talking about legal language, we, we take it out of the royal and we put it merely in the like juridical judicial and we shrink the concept of, of what law is. Well, let me ask a follow-up question, Brad. It, it seems to me like you're saying in so many words something similar to what our friend E.D. would assert because you, now, cause you're, you're adding there's this honor dimension to moral code right? You're, you're mm-hmm. saying mm-hmm. it's about glorifying God, right? Which we're, we're obligated to do as his creatures. And we bring shame upon ourselves to the degree to which we, we don't do that. Uh, but, but you're still saying that's the purpose of the moral code. In other words, that, that code of how to honor God and, and live for his glory or not live for his glory. I think we're still agreeing that that's at the center and that there's, mm-hmm. a, there's uh, various ways that you can draw that out. You can emphasize the juridical or you can emphasize the social. And I think mm-hmm. that the careful thing is, is that we can't go maybe too far just down one of those two rabbit trails. Yeah, absolutely. Because we know that the rabbit trail of only emphasizing the juridical, it leaves out the social component. It leaves out the, the what does this mean for me in community with other image bearers? And there's also maybe an argument to be made that if we only emphasize the communal honor, shame elements, and what that does in society, we're, we're missing out on the, the personal guilt, innocence paradigm as well. So it, it seems to me, it sounds like you're, you're pushing back, but I, I still hear echoes. Well, I'm only pushing back on the way you phrased initially was add to this moral law, you know, at the center. Yes, we could say that, but it's this, you say code. It's, it's hard for us not to speak in, in, in metaphorical language, right? And I think of it like a die, not even a coin, you know, so that when you're talking about obeying the law, you are simultaneously talking about glorifying God. So it's not an either yeah. or. It's literally which aspect you're talking about. I mean, First uh, Corinthians 10, 31, whatever you do, eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. And one yeah. way to articulate that is through law. But I wouldn't use that language when I'm talking about my father. You know, when I disobeyed my father as a kid, he didn't say, you're a criminal. You didn't clean your room, right? That's odd speak. And all I'm trying to do is, 
is help us to recover the full breadth of the biblical language. One legitimate is law. But we, what we tend to do is we tend to prioritize it so much that, that we neglect all the rest. And I'm not saying we have to choose. Yeah. Let, let me ask one follow-up question real quick, if I can. The, the quick follow-up question that I would have, first something that I want to call out that I, I think is very helpful. You also pointed out we have to anchor this in covenant. Right. Law is not an arbitrary, abstract standard of justice outside of the being and character of God. It's related to the very being and character of God. It's uh, the, yes. the law is the, the, the transposition of his nature uh, itself. Yep. And, yep. and we are in covenant with God, whether we want to be or not. The question is, are we in the old covenant or the creation covenant? Or are we in the new covenant in Christ? Right. So we yep. we have yep. a relationship already. It's just whether we're in a favorable or a disfavorable one yep. with him. And so I think that's a helpful emphasis, especially for those of us in the West who've maybe had overly simplistic legal presentations of the gospel yes. that we use that that miss out on some of those nuances. My question, yes. and Scott, you can slap me if, if I'm taking this a total different direction. But Brad, here's a question for you. Because I'm hearing you say things like, well, we've emphasized this and we, we missed the nuances of, of what, you know, Paul meant by namas, law, and, and things like that in the New Testament. Brad, how much of this would you say is dependent on the new perspective? Or at least trying to okay, I'm pull slap the you best you're taking pits. it in another yeah. perspective direction. It, well, well, like, are you pulling from the, the best parts of, of the new perspective on Paul? Or would you say this is a different conversation? I'm genuinely curious, brother, because I think there's some good scholarship here. But, you know, too, there's, there's people coming at this with, with questions on both sides. Yeah, I, I was seeing these things and my Chinese brother and sister were seeing these things before I really understood anything related to the, the new perspective on Paul. And then I, when I turned that literature, I thought, oh my goodness, there's like so much that's here that's echoing what the, we in the Chinese church have been talking about already. And so I would say it takes some of the best of what's there because what it, new perspective on Paul is kind of a, a meaningless term now because like what yeah. we should perspective, right? And so that, right. uh, this recovery of this collective component, you know, this uh, covenant people component, it really grabs onto that. And so mm -hmm. I don't think that you have to uh, ascribe to any particular quote unquote new perspective on Paul to get what I'm saying. Not, not at all. All right, Scott, you can take me out to the woodshed. <laughs> well, I would just, I, I would actually, I would honestly, between the three of us prefer to keep this part of the discussion. Like I want to have a follow-up where we talk about, We'll talk about some of this stuff in another episode if that's possible, Alex. Yeah. How about how about same time and place next week? Let's do that. Let's do I don't want I don't want to ruin everything in this week. Tune in this next way, you know, week if we're gonna get Brad nerdy Vaughan, more nerdy two. into theology, let's let's uh I've been you know, raked let's, over let's the coals for people saying that I'm too sympathetic to new perspective on Paul. I'm like, well what what exactly do you mean by that? I mean, everybody admits that there's been some good come from that kind of that research in this movement. Sure. So all I'm trying to say is, hey, well, look at these really helpful things. I think if we're going to talk about new perspective, we're going to have to define that and we'll do that next week. Uh, <laughs> that's my <laughs> that's my opinion. Um, but I, I would say I, this is what I was going to say, too, is like when we're talking about covenantal language, we naturally that automatically puts it in the category of relationship. Um, yeah. And so it's, it's, it is a very interesting discussion. I don't want to get I think we're a little bit off track, but I want to come back to the book. And one of the things that you talk about is this overlap between Chinese and biblical culture. It was one of the things that w really struck me uh, living in China was just like 
reading the Bible again and then reading some Chinese literature and realizing, wow, these stories seem very similar. And the kind of things I'm reading about in the Bible and the kind of things that these Chinese heroes are doing seem to be very similar. I just want you to maybe explain that a little bit more. How how does the overlap between Asian culture, especially East Asian culture and Middle Eastern or near uh uh, Near Eastern biblical culture overlap. How how does this aid us in the process of contextualization? On the one hand, but on the other hand, is there a danger, especially in missionaries that have a little bit of knowledge, a little bit of experience, or starting to see things, they're listening to this podcast and then rushing out? Is there any dangers or concerns to be aware of with over contextualization? I really think you need to learn how to ask multi part questions, Scott. I mean, you always ask. <laughs> <laughs> really simple questions. <laughs> See, now I can My take simple, you to the woodshed on yeah, that one, yeah, Scott. Yeah, that's fair, a that's a podcasting enough, novice error, man. Uh, I, I'm oh like, boy. I'm like no, no, it was not a new perspective your, error. Yeah, I'm like trying to track. Gonna, I'm like trying to track all your questions. No, no, I love your questions because they're so rich. And so, okay, but uh, all right. So, easy question here. Um, if, I, if I don't put it all in there, then I won't get a follow up. You know, I just you know, it's, it's <laughs> tough. And furthermore, yeah. And Go so, ahead. okay, yes, you know, I'm not the only one you want. this. You know, <laughs> Ken, Ken Bailey uh, has a few books where he's talked about this, how basically there are certain dimensions of East Asian culture that are a lot more similar to ancient Near Eastern cultures than you would find in the modern contemporary West. Now, people say, oh, the Greeks were more like us because they're Western, we're Western. Like, hold on. Ancient <laughs> cultures are different cultures just as much as yeah. we are geographically, right? So this concern for honor and shame, this concern for collective identity, uh, this understanding of, of story and appreciation for ancestors and tradition, so forth and so on, that's pervasive in so much of the majority world and in the ancient world. And so when you're living in that, you know, mental perspective, cultural paradigm, and you are tuned to that, you turn to scripture, all of a sudden these things jump out to you, right? That mm. you you've, may have read again and again, but you missed it. We need to have that lens. So, for example, in Romans 2, Paul actually says that the righteous person should seek after glory and honor. You know, Romans 2, 7. And then in Ruth 2.10, part of salvation is getting glory and honor. Okay. But we tend to think, because we don't have eyes to understand some of these groove dynamics, that it's just, uh, that that's all bad and that's just ego and whatnot. And so... That's where you see some similarities. And I think that that's where you get some of the uh, opportunities for genuine, healthy contextualization that you miss when you're monocultural. Okay. Because a, a multicultural perspective, a more diverse kind of lens and experience is more objective than a monocultural perspective. And, and so I'm not saying that an honest shame perspective is better or complete compared to a legal or that an Eastern is better than the Western. No, I want a broader human perspective. And that means knowing more about Indian culture and Mexican culture and German culture and just pick your cultures. And then you're going to be more tuned to the type of question concerns that may or may not be in scripture. But at least we can be more observant. Mm. I think I actually answered all your questions, Scott. You did? You did? See, my question was good. Good job. Good. Let's take that, Alex. Take that. Good job, brother. <laughs> Explain the new perspective of Paul in three words or less. Huh? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> this is what I we can do explain here. Explain it in two. <laughs> yeah. Go, go ahead, Alex. Don't no explain it in two, but 
Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah. I, we'll be We're getting so a lot of rails. emails. Yes. So, Brad, maybe help us with this because we are going to do this in two parts. This is your trailer for next week's episode. We're going to pick it up again with Brad uh, in seven days from now uh, if you're waiting for it to drop into your podcast feed. But my question for you would be kind of getting at what you said earlier. You did mention that all theology is contextual, right? It is all situated in a certain sense. Now, now help some of us out because there's been so much conversation over the last few years about standpoint epistemology and concerns where we see our secular postmodern world saying, well, everything is relative. You're not yeah. saying that. So help us understand what yeah. is the right relationship in your view between the transcendent transcultural biblical truths that that can take shape and, and enflesh themselves in a number of different cultures and contexts, but realizing that there is a true north there, and we get there by studying scripture, and then we can also have other nuances of, of that objective truth kind of brought out to us by learning from our brothers and sisters in other cultures who who simply see things in scripture that we sometimes don't. So help us understand the right balance there so that we don't go totally off the rails into subjectivism, but we also don't end up in sort of a a me and my Bible only logical positivism where nobody can kind of tell me what it means because I'm an infallible interpreter. Mm. Yeah, totally. This is a great question. It's one of my favorite questions because me too. I address this question most fully in my book, One Gospel for All Nations, and I unpackage actual whole methodology for how to be biblically faithful and culturally meaningful, you know, in contextual relations. So there's the full answer. Now for here, I would say that we all have a relative perspective on absolute truth. All right. And so, yes, absolute truth is a real thing. Okay. Everything is not just true if I feel like it. Okay. But we are all as limited beings, we have a relative perspective. Okay. The mm-hmm. same way as I can only see like the front of you now on this video. I can't see the back of you. Okay, what I'm seeing is genuinely true, right? Unless you're an avatar, you really look like the way you do. I might be AI generated. You don't know. You might be, right? And so I think that's what we have to be humble to recognize is that when we read the text, we all come with a relative perspective, which means not that truth is relative, but that we, because of our background, because of our culture, tradition, so forth and so on, we're going to be more attuned to seeing certain things and more likely to overlook or perhaps minimize other things. And that's going to reflect in our theologies and our methodologies. It doesn't mean that what we're saying is necessarily false, but as beings that aren't God, we're going to be uh, communicating truth, but with certain limitations. That is based on what I can understand and based on the limitations of the metaphors that I choose to use, right? And so uh, I'm simply trying to say, hey, let's broaden our cultural lens. Let's get to know other cultures, other people who are different than us. And we're going to be more tuned to getting more perspective so that our relative perspective is at least bigger and broader, just a little bit closer to that you know, c- complete perspective that we'll never attain, you know, because we're not God. But does that mm-hmm. get to your question, Alex? I, I think that's super helpful. And I, I think if I could just add one nuance to that, too, which is that those relative perspectives are capable of containing truth, right? Absolutely. That, that, that that's true knowledge, that, that God Absolutely. made us limited in that way uh-huh. on purpose 
And yet he still says that we're capable of knowledge yep. of of not comprehending everything about him uh, and about his revelation, but apprehending it. Right. Not not wrapping our minds to- totally around it, but at least grabbing on <laughs> to the edge and being able to hold on firmly yes. to that. Evangelicals get really unnerved by this because they think, oh, you're you're in you're talking about us having relative perspective that make truth. Relative. No. Your epistemology, your ability to apprehend something and its objective essence of being are two separate things. Sheer humility lets us know that we don't know everything. You know, we get this with age. When we're 50, we're reading the Bible. We notice things and we observe things and we know things that we didn't know when we were 20. All all I'm saying is that just like the, the age gap. Now imagine when you have this culture growth. Guess what? You also grow in your perspective and you see new things. And it both, you can see true things, both is richer and more dynamic and, you know, more full, hopefully. You so might say, Scott, that you would have a new perspective at that point, but I don't know. That's for sure. Well, like, you know, I have a new perspective on grandparenthood now that I have a beautiful little granddaughter, you know? Yes. Uh, congratulations. You don't yes. have that perspective, Alex. You know, we forgot <laughs> to, we forgot to celebrate that again. Well, we mentioned yeah. that last I week. I celebrate anyway. it every single day. Every single person I meet, I show a little picture and yeah. <laughs> anyway, sorry. I just throw that in there. Thank you. Thank you for indulging me. <laughs> so I have my last question for you and obviously we can talk more uh, next week, but here, here I am serving in the Bay area, lots of Chinese people. I mean, the majority of the people I'm, I'm around are coming from a, an honor, shame, uh, dominant perspective. So the question I would have for you to give us, you know, churchmen, some, some guidance here, you know, for the North American Christian ministering to first or second generation Asians, or even this whole new, you know, American born Chinese culture here in North America, what would you say are some practical takeaways that we should look to implement into our ministry, into our Bible teaching, into our preaching, into our gospel presentations. If you were just talking to an average local church in an area with a lot of Asians, uh, what are some things that they can implement in the way they talk about the gospel that would really help us to be able to communicate more effectively? That's a good question. Let me just do add a very practical relational thing is that first Mm. off, Westerners need to be more comfortable with relational debt. You know, like Mm. that's that's, in, in East Asian cultures, a lot around the world, you, you'll give a gift and then you'll give a gift back and, and, and you'll do a favor. And you're, what you're doing is you're really wedding your relationship together so that they creates this cycle of we, we mm. owe each other. And that's not a bad thing. Westerners see this as stressful, like, ah, transaction. No, it's the very same thing that you have in a marriage, right? You're serving one another. And like my wife and I had this infinite debt, you know, now, I, I, we couldn't track that, right? That's what relationships are when this knitting together. And East Asian non-Westerners get this a way better. And so that you're, you're constantly owing each other and that's a good thing. And so Westerners tend to like want to pay the debt off really fast. Like, so I don't owe anything. Mm-hmm. So relationally, there needs to be a genuine relational commitment. Okay. Knowing that we are intertwined, our lives are intertwined. Okay. So that'd be one thing. With that, I would say is Westerners need to learn, be more attuned to indirect communication. Because Westerners can sometimes be so direct, they make people lose face, they shame them, okay? And some Westerners don't tend to be as, as, as attuned to subtle clues and how to communicate in that way. So those are some very practical handles. Now, when it comes to, say, like evangelism and whatnot, I would focus a lot more on who people are, the relational context, and not merely what they do. I'd focus a lot more on what it is that people want to be known for and what 
they think gives them a face and help them see it's really God who gives them the face that lasts, face that lasts forever. Um, I mean, these are just being very concrete. Mm-hmm. East Asian cultures and, and honor shame cultures tend to be very, very concrete and practical because if you think about it, honor, shame, and relationship are so intertwined that you can't be in the clouds. You have to think about how are your relational dynamics working, right? You're always kind of managing, making sure everybody's healthy and harmony, whatever. So that goes into kind of life philosophy, right? Think about Confucianism. It's very, this worldly focus. And shouldn't we think that? I mean, we're talking about the gospels about, you know, God's will on earth is in his in heaven and the resurrection body and so forth and so on. Yeah. So let's emphasize the practical implications of the gospel for people so that they realize, because relationships are concrete. And so those would be a few things I would say. Mm. And one thing to add as we close this part one of our conversation with Brad is the old adage from John Piper, missions exists because worship doesn't. In other words, if we have a view of the gospel and of mission that that only takes into consideration that people are lawbreakers, but doesn't also see that in light of the glory of God, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and God is committed to being honored among all the peoples, then I think we're missing a critical piece of the why behind everything that we do among the nations, making disciples. Yep. So, Brad, we're so glad that you're able to join us. We look forward to picking it up next week, and we look forward to picking it up with you next week. Thanks for watching and listening. The Missions Podcast is a ministry of ABWE. To learn more about ABWE, head on over to abwe.org. And to get more of this show, go to missionspodcast.com. Thank you for all who entered the Radius International Missiology Conference giveaway. That giveaway is now closed, and the winners have been announced. And so if you were one of those lucky winners Or even if you weren't, we look forward to seeing you there. We will be at the conference June 28th through 29th in Sun Sun Valley, easy for me to say, Sun Valley, California. And of course, if you'd like to support the show, you can do so by leaving a positive rating and review in your podcast app of choice. That will help the content appear in front of other people that can be blessed and edified by it. And we also value your support. You want to partner with us and help us do more as we travel as we purchase equipment, as we do everything to stay on the air, head on over to missionspodcast.com and hit the support tab at the top. We appreciate those of you who have taken that step and we're grateful for all of you. Until next week when we pick it up again with our friend Brad. Thanks for watching and listening. Bye-bye.